0: If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. It's
1: no secret that writing can be lonely work, but does it really have to be? Whether you're full-time, part-time, or just starting out, you'll get insights into the tricks, tips, and production habits of writers from every level of the biz. From best-selling authors to those launching their first novels, you're sure to be in the company of friends as we encourage great writers to divulge and share their secrets. This is the Great Writers Share Podcast with your host, best-selling author, Daniel Wilcox.
2: Hello and welcome to episode number 44 of the Great Writer Share podcast with me, Daniel Wilcox, where every week I hijack an hour of time from some of the t- kindest and hardest working writers around today to join me on the show and discuss everything that makes them tick, roar and bounce. Today's date is Monday the 13th of July and we'll dive straight in with my personal update. So by the time this episode airs, When Winter Comes, episode two will be live on Amazon, um, which is quite exciting. That's two parts of the episode within a two-week period and I am furiously working away at episode number three, which has been a bit of a challenge in terms of the tight time schedules that I gave myself. But I wanted a challenge. I wanted to push through and I'm hitting it so far. So that's good. Um, but yeah, f- Wednesday, the 15th of July was when episode two aired, aired, published. Episode one has been doing phenomenally well. Very, very happy with that. Episode two, we'll see how that's going. And episode three will go live in two weeks. So this month is very much writing horror, editing horror, releasing horror very, very quickly. Um, and... Yeah, I, I have no idea how it's going to go at this point. I think it's all—it'll make itself clear in a few weeks, a few months, once we start getting rolling on the monthly episodes that come after. Um, and I reckon that this story will probably come in at about six, maybe seven episodes, which turns out about—I mean, it'll probably be about one hundred twenty thousand word book, which I'm very, very excited about because um, it's nice to have a sort of nice, nice meaty novel. Uh, so yeah, once I've once I've got a bit more information on how it's performed whether all of this works i'll be able to feed back to you guys and give you the scoop but all i can say is at the minute it's slowly trickling by it's it's got an interest um it's nothing in the way of massive sales or massive downloads but it's definitely enough to keep me happy and it's kind of what i was expecting at this point i think as you release more people see that there's more in this series they will start funneling through uh and then the ultimate goal of this is the box set at the end when you can piece it all together and publish it like that so yeah i'll keep you posted on that I started laying the foundation this week for my next non-fiction book which for those regular listeners know um, my last non-fiction book collaboration for authors went live at the end of June and I've now got the non-fiction bug so I'm currently plotting a book that is going to be all about productivity for authors taking a lot of the stuff that I've learned from the people I've spoken to on this podcast a lot of the stuff that I've put into my own practice that sees me going from when I originally started writing I think I was like 150 300 words an hour um, to now 3,000 words an hour and how i basically a mix of practical tips on how to improve your own writing make yourself faster but at the same time keep quality and then there'll be a lot of mindset and stuff in there as well because you you guys know i love i love all that stuff when it's all about brain matter and mindset and how people think because i think that's such a fundamental component that's that's missed a lot of the time so yeah that'll be on the horizon at some point i've not put anything in place in terms of targets for that all i know is that i'm aiming to try and get that out by the end of the year um it would be good if a productivity book could happen fast because then, <laughs> then you've got more credit in your method but we'll see how it goes there's a lot going on so uh, yeah that's just that's on its way one final update from me is that the great writers learn mini series is now public and available for anyone to view on the great writer share youtube channel so just go on uh, youtube.com put great writer share podcast or great writer share into the search bar and you'll find the six episodes that i released about five six weeks ago to the patrons um and that is now just available for everyone to use on, on YouTube to check it out. I'll probably drip feed a couple of episodes into the podcast feed because I, 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 I love the content. I was really proud of what we what me and John put together. And I think that I want as many people to access it as possible. And obviously, if people want to get more out of The Great Writers of miniseries, series, I will be dropping more of those with uh, different creators over the coming months um, that you can access through the Patreon, which we'll go into in a little bit. But yeah, that's, that's exciting. So check it out. It's on YouTube. And I'll throw it on the podcast feed over time as well. Onto today's guest, who is Robert J Sawyer, who is a mega-hitting, award-winning, absolute sci-fi superstar. I, <laughs> I, he's he's a person that I hadn't come across, and then we we got into communication, sorted out him coming on the podcast, and it was only posthumously that I started realizing just how big a deal this guy is in certain circles, and um, you'll you'll see in the intro that I announce when we actually go into the interview, but. He has a ton of awards behind his back. He's received the highest award from the uh, the, the Canadian government um, and he's just he's just done fantastic things over the past 20, 30 years to science fiction and he goes into a lot of it in this interview and I, I feel really, really lucky to have had this conversation with him. Um, some of the main points, we go into winning awards, we talk about what it was like to win those awards, but also more fundamentally for you guys we talk a little bit more about what it takes to win awards because i know that there are people who seek commercial success there are people who just want to write for fun and there are people that want to chase those awards and get the the uh, get accredited basically get that validation from from different bodies and definitely stick around because he talks a lot about one of the fundamental secrets to actually trying to actually winning the award um, and how that's applied across different parts of his life with different books we discuss his brand new book, The Oppenheimer Alternative, uh, which is very, very interesting because The Oppenheimer Alternative came out last month. This interview was recorded a little while ago, probably about six, seven, possibly eight weeks ago now, um, around early lockdown. So there's a little bit of a time lag here, but the book's out. It seems to be performing very, very well. I'm sure he'll be happy. But part of this book that I found interesting was the fact that he he's been with all these different publishing houses over the past few years he's been very very traditional in terms of his approach to publishing but with this specific book his latest book he decided to take the self-publishing route to explore how you can negotiate contracts in terms of different territories having the paperbacks different territories having the e-books, and basically trying to capitalize the most on your intellectual property Rather than just flat out canvassing and saying, one person, you can have the rights and publish it everywhere, he's really negotiated and tried to get the best deals that he can with this, and just the fact that he's taken that on board and done that himself through his own publishing company now, uh, we go quite deeply into that, and I've, I found that very, very interesting from my side. Just a quick reminder before we get into the interview, that this podcast is brought to you by all of the patrons over at www.patreon.com forward slash great writer share, where for as little as $1 a month, you can get access to... Early ad-free access to all episodes, you can get access to the Great Writers Learn modules, you can get a load of extra bonus content, including jumping over into Slack group and chatting with all of the other patrons over it there. Um, there is a lot going on behind the scenes that I can guarantee you in advance will start to spring up more into how the Patreon will work. So if you want to get in there early, if you want to start really seeing what's bubbling under the surface, then jump on over to www.patreon.com forward slash Great Writers Share. And without any further ado, we'll dive into the interview with the one and the only Robert J. Sawyer. Robert J. Sawyer is one of only eight writers to ever win all three of the world's top awards for best science fiction novel of the year. The Hugo, the Nebula and the formerly titled John W. Campbell Memorial Award. He has also won the Robert A. Heinlein Award the Edward E. Smith Memorial Award, and the Hal Clement Memorial Award, the top sci-fi awards in China, Japan, France, and Spain, and a record-setting 16 Canadian science fiction and fantasy awards at the Auroras. Rob's novel, Flash Forward, was the basis for the ABC TV series of the same name, and he was a scriptwriter for that programme. He also scripted the two-part finale for the popular web series, Star Trek Continues. He is a member of the Order of Canada, the highest honour bestowed by the Canadian government, as well as the Order of Ontario, the highest honor given by his home province he was also one of the initial inductees into the canadian science fiction and fantasy hall of fame robert welcome to the show daniel it's my pleasure thanks for having me man i i don't even know where to begin with i mean you've <laughs> there's so much to talk about you've got so many accolades you're obviously very very prolific and doing some fantastic stuff in your sphere of of science fiction and everything you're working on um i guess my first question to you is can you just give us a little bit of an overview of where your writing journey began for any of my listeners who aren't familiar with your work and how you got to where you are right now. I know that's quite a big chunk to cover.
1: Well, and I'm not just pandering here when I talk to you in the UK from Canada to say it was Jerry Anderson and his Supermarionation TV shows such as Thunderbirds, Fireball XL5, Captain Scarlet. Those were the things that got me into science fiction when I was a kid in the 1960s. And... After that, I discovered Star Trek, which was also a great love. So I'm part of that first generation of science fiction writers who came into the field not from having read the pulp magazines that were popular in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, but because of science fiction television, which finally really came into flower in the 1960s mm-hmm. and very much started in Great Britain. I'm a huge Quatermass fan, which is an unusual thing for a North American to say, but I love Quatermass. <laughs> um, behind me here, I've got a Suntaran from Doctor Who on my shelf, as well as a Thunderbird 2. I mean, British science fiction, I think, is much more simpatico with Canadian, we're all Commonwealth, mm-hmm. uh, than it is with American. And it really resonated with me from the
2: outset. Yep. Yeah. And what was it that first got you into the actual idea of writing a story? When you when you penned your first story, whether that was a short thing or a, a novel, what was that first trigger that got you into the writing sphere and, and made you think, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a go?
1: So the very first science fiction novel I ever read was written by the guy who Turned out to be the highest paid per word science fiction writer in history. And I'll tell you why in just a second. His (laughs) name was Alan E. Nurse, N-O-U-R-S-E, but pronounced nurse. He wrote a novel called Trouble Trouble on Titan, one of Saturn's moons. And uh, it began with an introduction about what joy it was to write science fiction. So before I even read my first science fiction novel, here was an author telling me, that uh, it was the greatest profession in the world. I knew I wanted to do it before I'd even read any of it. (laughs) Now, Nurse also wrote a novel called The Blade Runner. Well, Ridley Scott didn't want the the, the 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 is a dime a dozen. But he paid $25,000 for Blade and $25,000 for Runner because he didn't want to call his adaptation of Philip K. Dick. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? The title of the actual novel that was made into the movie Blade Runner. So $25,000 a word is a rate not many authors get, but Alan no. e. Nurse got it for that title.
0: Yeah,
2: and, uh, and so at what point did you, what, tell us a little bit about your first story when you actually put pen to paper and you went, okay, let's, let's make this happen. So my first serious attempt,
1: I was 19 years old and one of the local planetariums was having a contest mm-hmm judged by Isaac Asimov, my science fiction writing idol at that time. Amazing. And I thought, just knowing that he would read the entry, not any hope that I would win, just knowing that he would read it, got me motivated to enter the contest. And in fact, he did read it. And in fact, I did not win. But the planetarium staff really liked my uh, story. And so they bought the rights to make a planetarium star show out of it. That was 40 years ago, my first sale, also my first attempt seriously at writing a story. And uh, it's been
2: all uphill ever since. Amazing. And what is it about science fiction? that I know, obviously, you mentioned that you read a science fiction book, and you had a bit of an introduction from someone there into saying it's a fantastic avenue to pursue. What is it specifically about science fiction that gets your gears turning? You know, as we
1: talk, this is just a day or two after uh, Crew Dragon docked with the International Space Station. That's just a taste of what it was like being a kid in the 1960s. And I was born in 1960 flat, 1960 zero, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with the Apollo program, with this promise that our life was going to be in space. And with this movie that I saw when I was eight years old, my dad took me, 2001, A Space Odyssey. You're born in a year that ends in a zero. Even at eight, you can do the math. I was going to be 41 when 2001 came out. My dad sitting next to me, a little bit of a late starter, was 43. So sitting there at eight years old, when I'm still younger than dad is now, we're going to be in space. And they're doing it. I see it on TV every week with the new launch or new progress and Mercury, Gemini, and then Apollo. Oh my God, it was irresistible to think about the future of humanity in a science fictional context, a context if you were born in that decade
2: and uh, as you mentioned your your first story came out um you say 40 years ago you must have seen a thousand different changes in the publishing industry during that time is there anything significant that you can feel has really sort of turned the tide obviously the the dawning of the, the kindle and the e-publishing revolution is, is a big change but what have been some of the, the most significant changes for you in the publishing industry over the past 40 well years? so i won't
1: say that one you're absolutely right but everybody says that audio books for authors who are not New York Times bestsellers. It used to be you could get audiobooks only on cassette tape. And so the manufacturing cost was enormous, and most audiobooks were abridged. And so they were only done for the Stephen Kings of the world, you know, the huge, gigantic mega be- Michael Crichton's, the mega bestsellers. Now, almost every book comes out in an audiobook format, And it's unabridged, and that's all thanks to digital electronic distribution, making it cheap and easy to distribute audio content. And there have been years in this, 40 years that I've been publishing, where I've made more money off my audiobook royalties and advances than I've made off my print royalty and advances. And when I started in this game, nobody thought of audiobooks as a significant portion of the market. And of course, my new book, The Oppenheimer Alternative,
2: is in print is an ebook and is an audiobook?: Do you feel that's something that every order, every author now, no matter whether you're uh, traditionally published or independent, is, is something that you have to have as an author, or do you think that we're still at a point where you can get away with having a few formats, but not all of the formats?
1: Oh so you don't have to have it, you don't have to, because the big thing that was discovered when audiobooks became widely and easily available is that they are an additional marketplace. They don't cannibalize sales. The people who tend to read, uh, read, quote-unquote, listen to audiobooks, are people who are exercising on a treadmill or out jogging, long-distance truckers or people of a long commute to work. People are consuming books in additional hours of the day in which they previously couldn't consume them at all. So it's an additional market. It's more money, more readers, Bigger pie than it used to be. But if you're just doing print, that's perfectly fine. But you're not going to cannibalize. This is the beauty of it. Ebook didn't cannibalize print, audio doesn't cannibalize ebook or print. The pie, the number of people consuming prose fiction, is at an all time high in human mm-hmm.
0: history.
2: No, it's a, it's definitely a fantastic time to be a story writer, no, no matter who you are. I uh, I definitely want to come on to because obviously I read that intro and it's just absolutely flooded with a whole host of awards for from various different bodies for various different works. Um, I just I guess one of the biggest questions I have as as a, a budding author who is looking at some point down the road to win an award, what is it that you say is one of the key criteria for writing fiction that wins awards? So.
1: One has to be humble as one says you're, this. You're at it. You're is, at, at it. At but it is <laughs> ambition. Not okay. ambition to win the award, artistic ambition. You have to be trying to do something hard. Everybody wants an award, and everybody writes just a knockoff of whatever their favorite is. If they're a crime writer, they knock off Agatha Christie or Robert B. Parker. If they're a science fiction writer, they knock off Isaac Asimov or Neal Stephenson, or whoever their favorite is. No, you've got to do something hard, difficult. It's, you get points for effort in the awards arena. Even a noble failure is more likely to win an award than banal success. So if you want to be an award-winning off, author, say to yourself, what can I do that will knock people's socks off? Not, what can I do that everybody else has already previously done before? ambition at the artistic level is rewarded, at least with awards, and it may not be awarded with, rewarded with money. My friend Jerry <laughs> Pornell, great uh, science fiction writer who won vanishingly few, if any, awards and no major ones for his fiction, used to say quite rightly that times of good sales will get you through times of no awards better than times of awards will get you through times of poor
2: sales. Hmm. No, I think it's a, a come up a couple of times with people I've spoken to. That there seems to be a dichotomy between being critically acclaimed or being commercially successful. Um, have you found that to be the case then? I know, obviously, you gave a stark example there, but is that is that a statement that you think can be broadly applied across the author spectrum?
1: So this is why I'm so thrilled to have won the three awards you mentioned in the introduction, because, one is the People's Choice Award of Science Fiction, the Hugo, readers vote on that. Another is the Academy Award of Science Fiction, the Nebula, writers vote on that. And the third is the award given by academics and critics in the field, the major academics and critics, and that's the John W. Campbell Memorial Award. And to have appealed to all three audiences is a very difficult feat to do. And I did not manage it with one book. I won for three different titles. There are people who have won all three. There are only a couple, but there are people who have won all three with the single book. But much more commonly, a book that really resonates with the reader will leave the experienced writer saying, yeah, yeah, I see how he pulled that off. Or the (laughs) academic saying, okay, all right, but it's not actually cutting edge. To do it,
2: I had to do three different books, but eh, it still worked in the end. What do you say to the people who, I mean, I know, I know quite a few authors that stay away from the award game because they're worried about the politics behind the scenes and the networking and all that kind of, you know, interlinking of people trying to work their way to get the awards um, via different avenues. Do you, are you aware of much of that stuff? Is that something that you've never been? So I'm
1: lucky in that I won my first really major award in 1996, the Nebula award before We had social media before there was much of this online stuff uh, in terms of uh, log rolling uh, and campaigning to win awards. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's no doubt about it that there's a political element to it now. There certainly is in some awards where people are voting for books that they feel signify a social justice position that they want to support without necessarily being the best book that's written in the field. Um, And that's, you know, that's fine. The same thing happens at the Academy Awards or any other award. People vote for whatever reason they want to vote for in whatever categories they're eligible to vote in. So, yeah, it is fraught for sure. And the reality is that um, I've won awards that I didn't even know existed. (laughs) Uh, And those are the most satisfying in a way when somebody's... I I have to admit, now, Hal Clement was a friend of mine, the great hard SF pioneer, long passed away now. I didn't know there was an award named in his honor until I won it. And uh, that was delightful to have somebody say, you know your friend Hal? Yeah, I miss him every day. You know there's an award in his honor? No. And the jury voted you as the winner? What? All right. That really meant an
2: enormous amount to me. Yeah. I want to come back a little bit to what you said about needing to be ambitious in order to win the awards, creatively ambitious, and, and push those boundaries. Because that's, I've, to me, that seems to be something that's easily said, but I'm not sure how one would put that into practice. So do you have any tips for people who are looking to do something creatively ambitious with their particular genres?
1: Okay. So not to be self-serving here, but I'll say... Amazing Stories, the world's first science fiction magazine, still being published now, but founded in 1926, just came out of it with its review of my novel, The Oppenheimer Alternative, my new book. And they said in the review, a solid award contender. Why did they say that? They said that because I tried something difficult. What I tried in that particular case was a book where every single character in this alternate history science fiction novel was not just a real person, but a famous person. So I couldn't make up characters and their motivation, motivations and their how they talked and their inner monologues. Um, I had to research and nail what Albert Einstein was really like, what J. Robert Oppenheimer was really like, what Edward Teller was really like. That's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. Most people who write novels set with, in the past with famous characters. Ben-Hur is the classic example of the movie, right? The most famous historical character of that period is Jesus Christ, if, if you uh, accept his historicity. And um, he shows up in a cameo in that film. The whole film is about Ben-Hur. Nobody ever heard of that guy, right? Michael Crichton did this when he wrote a novel about the two great feuding paleontologists, Edward Drinker Cope and O.C. March on the American frontier in the 1800s, puts one in the first chapter, the other in the last chapter, and all the others are some guy Michael made up in the middle, because that's (laughs) the easy way out. I took the hard way out. And already reviewers are saying, you know, did he succeed or fail? That's for the readers to judge. But boy, he tried something really hard. That Mm -hmm. needs to be acknowledged.
2: Yeah. And since you brought it up, let's talk about the Oppenheimer um alternative and go into a little bit of how the story started. I mean, I know that in doing some of the research for this, that you've been in a fair few magazines and, and newspapers and things telling a bit of the origin of this story. But just for my listeners, how did how did this story come to be? So
1: this is the 75th anniversary of the birth of the atomic age. And it just seemed natural to be reflecting back upon it, just as last year. There were a lot of stories reflecting on uh, science fiction stories, reflecting on the 50th anniversary of the Apollo first Apollo moon landing. But the thing that really got me thinking about this was the notion that these guys were tragic figures, as we look at them now, the people who created the atomic bomb. They unleashed upon the world something that Today, we still live in fear of. We live in fear of North Korea going rogue. We live in the fear of the Soviet Union and the United... Or not Soviet Union, excuse me, Russia and the United States deciding that they're going to exchange nuclear weapons or India and Pakistan. We, you know, these guys never got a chance at redemption for what they did. And I, being a positive, upbeat kind of guy, a Canadian, wanted (laughs) to write a novel where maybe... The guys who had had to say, as Oppenheimer did, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, might have a chance, if they succeed, to turn it around and say, now I am become life,
2: the saviour of our world. Perfect. And, uh, I mean, we are talking on the eve of the book dropping, um, and... So to speak, for a book about so a farm. Speak- bomb. <laughs> <away. laughs> um, I mean, obviously, this this episode um, won't go out for a few weeks, but as we talk, it's on the eve of the book dropping. So I'm guessing you have quite high hopes for this book. One before we dive a little bit into more of the specifics of your public your publishing process, um, I did wonder has, how has your writing process evolved over the years? Because I can imagine you have. Um, am I writing thinking 23, 24 books to your name, so there must be some, or I assume there were, have been changes in how you actually go from. The creation, coming up with the idea, into writing the book, and getting that into a publishable format.
1: For sure. Uh, for one thing, research is so much easier now than it was when I was starting out. Um, you know, I sit here at my home in Toronto, and Amazon, miraculously, except in this current epidemic crisis, brings me books the next day if I need them, or I can uh, get them on my ebook reader immediately. Uh, And, of course, there's just bazillions of documents online. So the research is easier for me, but I also know it's easier for the reader. So as a science fiction writer, I can write a more complex book today because all I have to do if I want to talk about, as, for instance, the Oppenheimer alternative, uh, the diffusion process for separating uh, uranium-235 from uranium-238. If I just use that in a sentence and don't explain it and you don't know what it means, well, oh my goodness, wouldn't it be nice if you had access to all the world's information just a few (laughs) keystrokes away? You do. I don't have to stop the novel. I can go on. If obviously if it's a crucial point that you know it, I, I can stop and explain it in the novel, but I can salt things into the novel as keywords that enable those who are curious to follow up without bogging down the story. The great knock that literature professors always had against my genre of science fiction was that it was always full of what they call info dumps, expository Mm. lumps, where one character would say to another, as you know, professor, blah, 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 because there was no easy way for the reader to gain that information if he or she didn't already have it. Now they do, and I can do much more in terms of prose, elegance, and characterization in a chapter that still deals with very high-level science and technology than I could when my first short story came out 40 years ago or my first novel 30 years ago.
0: If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. The newest vacuum and mop robot from Ecovacs is Deebot N8 Plus. It is an all-in-one vacuum with Osmo Mopping System that allows for simultaneous vacuuming and mopping, and eliminates 99.26% of bacteria on the floor. It cleans more effectively with true mapping technology, so you get more coverage and do not miss a repeat spots. Buy Deebot N8 Plus at Ecovacs.com now. For a limited time, get 10% discount. Using code Ecovax ten.
2: How did you get your your science head when it came to writing? Because if I'm judging, if I'm um, getting the narrative right, obviously you, you started your journey in writing forty years ago. So you were twenty when that began. Um, yeah, that's right. Were you academically um, proficient in science up before that point? It was was science. So
1: always I was in university correcting. by that point. Yeah. The only science I've ever studied post secondarily was uh, psychology. Um, I uh, have an arts degree. I have two honorary doctorates from fine Canadian universities, but I have an arts degree. <laughs> and um, I, I look at it the way a sports journalist approaches sports. You don't have to be an athlete to know and understand sport. You don't have to be able to do it yourself to be a world-class expert commentator and evaluator of it. And I really could have had two careers. I probably would have been just as happy in either one, science journalists or science fiction writer. Either one lets you move from discipline to discipline to discipline and be the guy who goes in to the labs all over the world. I've been graciously welcomed at science labs in China and science labs in the United States, and I've been to Oxford, you know, in the UK, and I've been... Uh, had breakfast with Nobel laureates. I mean, it's amazing how welcoming people are if you simply say to them, I just want to get the facts right. Well, let me show you. Let me tell you all about it. And they will. So I'm not a scientist. I never pretend to be a scientist. I'm a rationalist and a logical thinker, but that's a, a virtue in every human being. Uh, but I understand the process. I know who the players are and I know who I'm rooting for to turn out, you know, is string theory right versus quantum gravity? I know who I'm rooting for, right? And I write my stories hoping that
2: my team will win. Mm. Definitely seems to be the, the magic key into a lot of professions. If you can tell people you're a writer, you tend to find a lot of open doors and people willing to, to share their experience with you.
1: hundred percent, because it makes no difference what that person you're speaking to does for a living. They have for sure had the experience of what they do for a living, having been misportrayed Mm -hmm. in pop culture, whether they're a police officer, whether they're a nurse, whether they're a school teacher, a high school student, uh, a break dancer, a graffiti artist, you name whatever it is, it's been misrepresented. And when you say, tell me your story so I can reflect
2: you correctly, everybody makes time for you. Absolutely. And let's dive a bit more into your so the actual publishing process for the Oppenheimer alternative, because I read something interesting on your Patreon page that this is a book that you've gone straight into, or it's the first book that you haven't necessarily gone straight to uh, an agent or through a publisher in order to get the book out. Um, first uh, first in, in
1: 25 years, my early books, my first few books, I had to write Without a contract. Mm, and yeah, then you only after you're established will they start giving you a contract before you write the book. But yes, I did not want a contract for this one up front, partly because, you know, I'd had a great editor in the States who passed away, sadly. He fell down a staircase and hit his head and died. I had a great editor in Canada who left the company. Uh, and I thought, you know, the, the two people who I built my career with were no longer there. And I, I miss them both, and I wanted to do this book my way. Uh, if you have a long-standing relationship with an editor, you know, you know what they like, what you like, you've got an understanding. I didn't want anybody telling me this is the narrative you have to tell, particularly to the American audience, about American involvement in nuclear weapons. I wanted to be able to write my book and then present it to the world. As it happened, we ended up with a fine literary publisher in Canada, and a fine um, uh, genre fiction, science fiction specialist in the United States. And I retain the rest of the world rights that it's available as in print and ebook, and audiobook throughout the rest of the world under my own imprint. And that's working out both to be very lucrative as a publishing model for me, and very rewarding because the publishers that are doing it are 100%
2: behind my vision of how this mm-hmm. book should be told how this story should be told. What are some of the big hurdles that you've found along the way? Or has there been anything unexpected in bringing this book to the forefront yourself that you maybe haven't particularly anticipated?
1: So the downside of traditional publishing is how incredibly long in advance a text has to be locked in for them to bring it out to marketplace. The reason for that is because in the United States, the 800-pound gorilla of book store retailing is Barnes & Noble, a chain. And they treat books the same way any department store would treat Christmas ornaments. In other words, they order their Christmas ornaments in March to be on the shelves in November, right? Nobody is, is placing an order for Christmas ornaments as a store buyer in November. That was done months ago. And they want to have their books locked in nine, ten months in advance. And Barnes & Noble, having been burned by many an author quite rightly over the years, says, we're not going to order that book just because the author says he'll have it ready when Christmas rolls around. We're going to wait till he has it ready now and then pu- have it in our store ten months later. So for this novel, I knew that as my deadline was getting closer and closer to July 16th, the birth of the atomic age, the uh, 75th anniversary thereof with the, job, uh, the the Trinity test, and August 6th with Hiroshima's bombing and August 9th, Nagasaki's, that a traditional publisher, we had offers from some major traditional publishers said, yeah, we can do this book in 2021 or maybe 2022. No, we're going to miss the 75th anniversary. And so I took smaller publishers and smaller money uh, to get it out because I felt that having it out for the 75th anniversary would give the book a cachet and a timeliness and media exposure that it otherwise would have missed out completely on had it come out in another year.
2: And you mentioned that obviously uh, some of that has gone through your own imprint. Was this the birth of that imprint itself? Is that something that you're, you're looking at continuing down the line with Further Books From Yourself? What I've
1: done previously only is books of mine that were all traditionally published by one of the big five New York publishers, uh, whichever I've been with four of the five big New York publishers, uh, that I've clawed the rights back. So, my backlist, I've been releasing as I get the rights back and uh, enjoying the much higher royalty rights mm-hmm. I've been able to get by publishing them myself. This is the first time a front list title, that is a new book, has come out in any market. Uh, under my own imprint. Um, and it's only Great Britain, uh, it's sorry, it's everywhere but Canada and the United States. So it's Great Britain, mm. Australia, New Zealand, plus those markets where English books sell in huge quantities, but English isn't the first language, such as India, for instance, which has way more English speakers than Canada has. For <laughs> it has way more English speakers than the United States has in India, mm. right? It's, it's a billion people. Um, India and uh, all the countries throughout Africa where English is spoken amongst other languages. I have all those rights and I'm exploiting them myself because that seemed the efficient way to do it. And it's, so far, it's working well. So if a, one of your listeners in the UK orders the book from Amazon, they will get a lovely edition with a beautiful cover, fully professionally printed, but I'll be the one who has, been pub- who has published that edition and I'll get the lion's share of the money if one of your listeners happens to be here in Canada or in the United States, my print publisher will get the lion's share of the money. But that's okay. I get my royalty, my my little slice of the pie, as authors normally do.
2: Definitely. I, this kind of stuff absolutely fascinates me because obviously we're in a position where um, you know there's a constant back and forth between is independent publishing the right way, is traditional publishing the right way. Um, and there seems to be, that, I mean, there is no definitive answer because there are so many avenues you can take your book down. And like you've done, you, you've split up, your your rights amongst different properties and different territories, in order to try and make a deal that works best for you. What advice would you give to someone who is maybe uh, has just written their first book, is about to pitch it to agents and, and publishers, um, but isn't sure of the right path to go? Would you is do you have any sort of strong feelings either way for for what someone who's starting now? Yeah, when pursue? I
1: sure sure when I started. You had to have an agent. There was just no way to get an editor to read your manuscript without an agent. These days, I don't know if that's necessarily the case anymore. I have an agent, a very good agent. He also represents some very famous people. He's the Dalai Lama's agent. He's Stephen <laughs> King's agent for all of King's translation rights. I mean, we can talk about Chris Watts is is his name, right? Chris is great. But if I were starting today, would my first choice be to land an agent? I'm not sure. Mm. I think you know editors are much more accessible online. You can find them and find their email addresses and drop them a query. And if they're interested, they can ask directly to see the manuscript from you. As for dealing with publishers, whenever a publisher says they want any right whatsoever, you got to say to them, well, that's great. What's your track record with making money off of that right? For instance, just in the last 36 months, every major US publisher, and I imagine it's true in the UK too, has started insisting that they get audiobook rights. Now, my books have been coming out in audiobooks since 1995 was my first audiobook, but I've been selling the rights myself to companies that do audio production. And these guys were saying, well, we want those audiobook rights, and we'll split the money with you. And I said, how many audiobooks have you brought out? How many bestsellers have you had that have been audiobooks? Yeah, well, none, but we want to get into that area. Well, when you're an established competitor for the people who've been doing this for decades, maybe you will have an attractive offer for me in that regard. The big thing I did with both of my print publishers, which I couldn't have gotten away with, with one of the big five, was say... You're really good at print, but you guys, just the general print publishing industry, are demonstrably lousy at ebook publishing. You way overpriced the books. you do nothing to promote them, and ultimately you end up with minuscule ebook sales. So I'm not offering ebook rights. I'm offering only print rights. That's what you do well. You do it better than I do because you know how to get books into brick-and-mortar bookstores. Now, as it happens, COVID nineteen hit and all the stores closed. But the plan was sound <laughs> <laughs> at the time I made it. The plan was sound. So, um, I, a big you know the big publishers it's a non-starter. They will not do that deal. Medium-sized publishers, smaller publishers, if they're hungry, if they like the book, they in both cases my Canadian and American publishers said okay, deal. We'll make our money on print. You make your money on eBooks, and we'll cross-promote each other. And that's what we've been doing
2: very successfully so far. With your imprint, are you looking at bringing on other authors as well, or is that solely just to organize your business in a way that's more effective? For it's solely to do – I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. It's yes. solely
1: to do my own books, except that it bothers me that there's some classic science fiction books – that are in the public domain, and uh, many of them are in public domain in Canada, not yet in the um, in the UK, because we only have a 50-year after the author's death, a okay. uh, copyright period. You've got 70 in the EU right now, and the UK hasn't changed that since they left the EU. Um, but there are a bunch of classics that I think really deserve a really attractive addition, uh, you know, with proper typesetting style, uh, curly quotation marks and m dashes, not the Project Gutenberg typewriter style stuff um, and i 've got as a long term goal as a hobby uh, to bring out editions of those for free just to it 'll promote my imprint a little bit, but just beautiful editions of books that every science fiction fan should have read they 're h g wells they 're jules verne they 're Mary Shelley you know if you haven 't read these classics. Um, and some of my favorite crime fiction, too, The Maltese Falcon is public domain in Canada, for instance. But in general, no, my imprint, sfwriter.com, which is my website and also the name of my corporation, is to
2: publish the Robert J. Sawyer backlist and new titles. Mm. Well, something interesting that, obviously, you've just mentioned there, uh, SF Writer. Is there a reason that you didn't go with your name as a website domain for your for your books and your... I was the first
1: science fiction writer in the world to have a website
2: I and the first to Canadian
1: back. author of any type to have a website. And nobody knew what a website should be called back then. So <laughs> I thought, well, I, I also do own the domain name, robertjsawyer.com. And it just mirrors, it just goes to, points to sfwriter.com. But at the time, I thought about a bunch of different names or lots of great names to be had back then. And I thought, ultimately, shorter is better. Science fiction writer was available, too. But I thought, no, it's too much. People will make mm. typos typing that in. Uh, SF writer was available, and I grabbed it. But I'll tell you, a friend of mine, Martin Harry Greenberg, got sci-fi.com. And he later sold it to the American Sci-Fi Channel back when they first started and still spelled their name the sensible way, S-C-I-F-I. They later changed it to SYFY mm-hmm. in some rebranding. Sold <laughs> it to them, that domain name, for one million American
2: dollars. Big business there. I've, yeah. I've had a so few if anybody
1: friends. wants sfwriter.com, it is only <laughs> one half of one
2: million American dollars. And I'll sell it to you in a heartbeat. There you go, the offer's there. <laughs> um, <laughs> how much of your day is put towards promoting and marketing? Because uh, again, I, I'm, I'm imagining, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, from the tales that I've heard of people who were traditionally published sort of a few, a few years back, there was much less in the way of you needing to promote your own book. And obviously now we're in an economy where it feels like unless you're marketing yourself as an author, you're not giving yourself a decent chance. So how much of your time is put towards promotion of your books? So I'm an extremely lucky
1: guy because financially I've done okay in this profession. 20 odd years ago, my wife quit her job in the commercial printing industry and came to work full-time for me as my salaried assistant. So she looks after most of the grunt work of promotion and proofreading and going through contracts after my agent has gone through them, just to double-check, and all that kind of stuff. And I also hire a freelance publicist, Mickey Mickelson. That's a great name for a publicist. (laughs) Mickey Mickelson of Creative Edge. Uh, and uh, he's just fabulous. So I write checks to get these things taken care of by my wife and by my publicist. That said, when a new book is out, you and I are just chatting, and this is easy. But there are also lots and lots of by-email interviews where somebody will send you 20 questions, each of which requires, you know, paragraphs of answers. I did one recently for the great website File770.com. Uh, which is uh, a leading science fiction news website, and I had to write three thousand words. That's a short story's worth of mm-hmm. words to fully answer the very insightful questions that Mike Glier, the interview, had asked. That was a that was you know not a day's work, but it was many, many hours of work. I have to do that part of it. But the rest of it shipping off review copies or bugging my publisher to ship them off and reminding them and following up as one needs to sometimes, uh, is all taken care of by Carolyn uh, or by Mickey for me. Mm.
2: We are unfortunately getting a bit short on time. One, one question that I did want to touch on, just because this is completely selfish, just because I'm massively interested in it, is uh, you're member of the Order of Canada. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how that came about to be and how it felt to be ordained with that award.
1: Sure. The Order of Canada, of course, is like the Order of the British Empire. It's like the Order of Australia. Uh, or in the United States, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. It's the highest honour given by the government. Uh, in Canada, it's bestowed by the Governor-General, who is the Queen's representative. We're still very much and proudly so part of the the, Briti- uh, the Commonwealth of Nations, as we, uh, as we call it. Uh, You're nominated by other people, and uh, they have to gather other nominations from still other people. And then the Chancellery of Honors, which is a division of the federal government, contacts disinterested third parties, not just the people who've nominated you. So in my case, academics who study science fiction, i have told after the fact were contacted. The editors of science fiction magazines were contacted. Science fiction booksellers and bookstore owners were contacted to see if my stuff was really as significant as part of Canadian literature, as part of being a pioneering voice in this genre in my country. And I was so, so proud to be inducted um, by the governor general um, and particularly so to be the first person ever to be inducted for work in the science fiction field. And just to put it into perspective, the second Canadian to be inducted for work in the science fiction field was William Shatner for being Captain Kirk. So <laughs> I was absolutely thrilled to A, be first, only go where no shot had gone
2: before, and B, to get it for my work as a science fiction writer. Mm. That's absolutely incredible. Um, I mean, like I say, there's so much I want to dip into with various different accolades and things. Um, one, the, the last main question I have before I get into, um, I've got a question from one of my patrons here, um, and it's a question that I ask everyone, and feel free to take it in any direction you like, uh, and that is, why do you, Robert J. Sawyer, write? Because of all the other things that I could plausibly
1: do to make a living, this is the least painful. That's a lot of pain associated with it when you get rejection or a bad review or sometimes economics ups and downs. But if you got to do something to make a living of the things I'm capable
2: of, this is the least objectionable one. Beautiful and succinctly put. Um, Okay, so I've got a question now from one of my patrons over at www.patreon.com forward slash great writer share. And Mark McClure asks, are science fiction and speculative fiction two sides of the same genre?
1: So, at least here in Canada, speculative fiction, which Margaret Atwood is a term that that Margaret likes to use speculative fiction, is obfuscatory. It is used by people who are applying, if they're an academic for tenure at their university, or if they're a writer applying for a grant from one of the government granting agencies that gives largesse to writers, to hide the fact that they're writing science fiction. To me, it's a fairly objectionable term. It's not being loud and proud, right? This is, we're talking in June, it's Pride Month. I don't happen to be gay, but I have many, many friends who are gay and bi and transgender and queer and all that kind of uh, range of experience. And their lesson is be loud, be proud, shout it from the rooftops, don't be ashamed. And science fiction writers, sfwriter.com. i Vanity plate, which was not my vanity, but a gift from my wife, my wife on my license uh, on my car is SF writer. Be loud, be proud. But spec, because the thing about speculative fiction and why it's a BS name is, you can go into any bookstore in the world and find the science fiction section. You can hunt forever. For the speculative fiction section, it doesn't exist. It's a mask people wear to
2: hide something they're ashamed of. Nice. Uh, Another question for you, which is, uh, how do you reward yourself when you've completed a project?
1: So I'm a hugely research-driven novelist, which means I read tons and tons and tons of background material for what I'm writing. So as soon as I'm done, it's reading for pleasure. For instance, I'm rereading The Maltese Falcon right now, one of my favorite novels. I just finished reading one of Robert B. Parker's Spencer novels, private detective novel, set in Boston. I'm reading right now also, uh, at the moment, Where the Crawdads Sing, which is a Deep South uh, murder mystery that uh, uh, was the big number one, at least in North America, best-selling fiction uh, work of fiction last year in North America, pure reading for pleasure, so mine is a literary life i 'm either writing or i 'm reading, and when i 'm not working i 'm reading for pleasure <laughs> and that 's my reward I love it. Uh, uh, what would your profession be if you weren 't a writer vertebrate paleontologist um, i want <laughs> I love dinosaurs I wanted to love be it. a dinosaurian paleontologist. I applied for and was accepted to study in that discipline at the University of Toronto, which it's a great paleontology program. Uh, and I chickened out at the last minute, not because I chickened out of, of studying dinosaurs, but we had a weird thing. I was, as I said, born in 1960. Unique in North America, in Ontario, my province, one of the 10 in Canada, had a 13th grade of high school. So, by the time you graduated high school, you were already 19 instead of 18, the norm in every other jurisdiction. And then you're looking at four years to get a bachelor's degree, two years to get a master's, four years to get a PhD, and then maybe a postdoc after that. You're looking at being 30 years old before you're finished with school. And Mm -hmm. at 19, I was done. I went on and I did a degree, a bachelor's degree, and Radio and television arts with as I say, a minor in psychology and another minor in English literature. But uh, I was done. There was no way I could face the prospect of another decade of education. Now, we've gotten rid of that grade 13, which seemed like a good idea at the time, like so many government (laughs) educational initiatives, partly because it burned people out instead of better preparing people for university, it turned them off from wanting... They were tired. They're adults. You know, you're skipping class in high school and writing your own notes because you're over 18. You can you can excuse yourself from class anytime you damn well please, but you're still in high school. What was... Crazy system. <laughs> but had I to do it over, I would have been a vertebrate paleontologist. Uh, I, I shouldn't say had I to do it over, that would be my preference. Mm-hmm. This is my... To quote what was once said about Captain Kirk, my first best destiny was writing science fiction. But that would have been another agreeable career path. Mm. You and my son would have a lot to talk about. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> yes. Well, see, this is the thing. You know, I, it's often said of me and of science fiction fans in general that maybe we never grew up. That we still love dinosaurs, we still love pizza, we still love science fiction, spaceships, and aliens. There's some truth in that, but we also never outgrew our optimism about the future. We never outgrew our love and uh, excitement at the, you know, the sheer awe and wonder of nature and of
2: space. Um, they're not bad qualities uh, mm. to necessarily hold on to. Absolutely. Okay, now into the quick fire round where I've got 10 questions I'm going to throw at you as quickly as possible. Like on mastermind here. Let's see how I can do. It's going to be amazing. Uh, we do have people who have set a record, which by all means, we can time. Oh, is it, is it, time? But it It's not necessarily timed, but it can be timed if you want it to be timed. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I've well, got you... my share of awards. I don't have to win this. <laughs> this would be the highest accolade. That's right. Um, but I'll, okay. I'll try to answer quickly and succinctly. Perfect. Are you ready? Yes. That's not the first question. (laughs) Okay. Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Trek. If you could bring two people with you to explore a desolate new planet, who would they be? Uh, Seven of
1: nine from Star Trek because, hey, seven of nine from Star Trek. (laughs) And uh, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's actually, I'm lucky enough to call a friend because between the two of us, we'd probably figure out how to survive. Amazing. What's your favorite place in Canada? Lake Louise, Alberta, which is this absolutely gorgeous glacier-fed lake. It's one of those, when you see a postcard in the rest of the world showing how pristine and beautiful Canada is, that's the place they show. Do you reread your published books? Never. I made a deal with myself that I wouldn't do it until the 40th anniversary of the publication of each one. So in 10 years, in 2010, it'll be the 40th anniversary of my first published book, Golden Fleece. And at that point, I'll be able to read it with objectivity. And I've totally, I've almost already forgotten all of it anyways. (laughs) Totally forgotten it. So no, not for 40 years. What's your favorite TV show? Star Trek, the original series. What's your favorite animal? The orangutan.
2: Good choice. Do you have a favorite board game?
1: My favorite board game is Trivial Pursuit, a Canadian invention, which is a (laughs) trivial answer. to it. Trivial Pursuit. I just love trivia. Nice. Where's one place you haven't been that you're dying to go? I've never been anywhere in Africa, and particularly, I have a great interest in paleoanthropology. Now, there's wonderful modern cultures in Africa, which I'd love to see and celebrate, and, of course, the wildlife. But I'd also like to see Olduvai Gorge and Tanzania and Uh, the parts of South Africa where the Australopithecines were found, Mm. see the birthplace of us. Nice. How many hats do you own? 20. (laughs) What's your favorite song? Uh, 19 of them are baseball caps. (laughs) And one is a a pork pie hat like Robert Oppenheimer wears, which I've been using in publicity pictures (laughs) for the new novel.
2: Perfect. Uh, Yeah, what's your favorite song?
1: Windy by the Association. Who's tripping down the streets of
2: the city, <laughs> smiling at her. I won't sing the whole thing because I don't do it. No, bad. by all means,
0: keep going. Windy by the association.
2: <laughs> Beautiful. That is ten questions. One bonus oh, question. That right? <laughs> That's it. Where can my listeners find out everything about yourself and all that you're working on?
1: sfwriter.com SF is in science fiction. Or look for me on social media as my full name, one together
2: without punctuation: Robert J Sawyer. Perfect. And one more time, Robert J. Sawyer, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a genuine pleasure talking to you and I wish we had longer to talk, but maybe our paths will cross once more. <laughs> I hope so, Daniel. Thank you. Beautiful. And thank you everyone for listening and I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Great Writer Share Podcast. Next week, I'll be joined by thriller author and writer coach, Christina Rienzi. Don't forget you can get early access to every episode of the Great Writers Share podcast and the chance to ask upcoming guests any of your questions just by becoming a patron of the show. All you need to do is visit www.patreon.com forward slash Great Writers Share and support the show for as little as $1 a month. One more time, that's www.patreon.com forward slash Great Writers Share. Until next time.